You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. You know, Martin, for many years, people have defined culture as what we do around here or what we do around here when no one's looking. Um, Technically, there's definitions that suggest that culture is a tacit assumptions that uh, surround an organization or a group of people. For me, they are very difficult definitions for people to grasp. So of late, we've been talking about culture being the set of expectations that people perceive to govern their particular group or organization. At the center of those expectations is trust. And I know we're going to be talking a lot about culture and trust as we move forward into this episode. G'day. G'day, Carl. Well, that's a very interesting um, perception on what culture is and how it's, how it's um, described by others. I, I, I agree with all of those observations. I also think that knowing where you're heading is part of um, the strategy that culture so so much impacts and the idea of having a true north as a as an individual as an organization as a group of people what what is it that when you're not looking at the compass you're actually heading towards mm. um and how dominant that is in in how people behave and what the thinking is is a, a really interesting con- concept that comes to the fore at the most challenging times i think and just to tie both of our comments together, setting of expectations actually is a very deliberate process. You know, in terms of true north and looking at the compass, when it comes to culture, if you take your eyes off the compass, you are lost and it's very, you'll become very quickly lost and have to find your way back. And that, because culture has had a bad rap for so long and been living in foster care in HR for most organisations instead of the CEO suite, or the vice chancellor's suite, I should say, in this instance, um, organisations are lost. They're largely lost, and, and companies have a lot of trouble getting back to, right, why does culture matter? Well, it matters to the count of tens of millions of dollars in terms of voluntary turnover and attrition, a plus productivity and engagement but more importantly at the moment with every university standing up a new strategy culture is the thing that fuels the strategy so it's one thing to have a nice culture yeah great you know we're we're doing all the right things that's the ticket to play but the culture actually has to speak to we're fueling the strategy here this is specifically designed to make sure we can meet our strategic goals you know, I can't help thinking back to early early experiences that I had as a as a teenager when I used to go on big walks in in the UK. It's about the last time I looked at a real compass. I think I can remember getting getting caught in a snowstorm and getting lost and not knowing where I was heading and and how I was um, how I was going to get there and how important the compass was at that point in time. I don't think we're in a snowstorm around the world at the moment, but we talked about this in our episode with with Jan Thomas last week and coming out of that that. In a time when there's been a lot of hope and people are wanting to be optimistic and have confidence, they need to know where they're heading. And a strategy can put put words to that, but a culture does give to your words the fuel to be able to make make your way through the most challenging times to get to your to your ultimate destination. And I think for for those organisations that are doing new strategies now, they're doing it in the midst of the snowstorm of COVID and our recovery from it. Those that that did it when the sky the skies were were clear and the sun was shining in advance of the strategy maybe had it as an opportunity to guide their way through the last little while. 
style. And they were some themes that, that, that came up in my conversation for this week's episode with Carolyn Evans, the Vice Chancellor of Griffith University and the head of the IRU. And we'll be back with Carolyn Evans just after this short break. While the global pandemic has forced the education sector to shift online, OES have been delivering high-quality online education services for over a decade. Having built thousands of online units and supported over 50,000 students, OES partners with universities across areas including learning design, learning analytics, simulations, student support, and more. Discover how OES can help support your institution's digital strategy. Visit oes.edu.au. Today's guest on HEDEX is Professor Carolyn Evans, who's led Griffith University in Queensland as its Vice-Chancellor for three years after roles as Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Melbourne and being a Fulbright and Rhodes Scholar. She's Chair of the Innovative Research Universities Group and a Fellow of the Social Sciences in Australia. Carolyn, welcome to HEDEX. Pleasure to be here, Martin. And Carolyn, um, you joined Griffith as its fifth Vice-Chancellor in February 2019 and developed a new strategy in your first six months or so at, at, at the university. And it seems a long time ago, three years later, when the world's a very different place in 2022 from 2019. Um, I wonder what your reflections would be on a number of things, how fit for purpose your strategy is for the times that we're now in, and your reflections on the journey that Griffith has been on, and you have personally traversed in that period since then. It's certainly been a complex three years, Martin. We had that first year, 2019, which I think was certainly, from my point of view, full of optimism and hope and really planning about the future. And uh, we took a good period of time with colleagues, uh, yes, probably six months to get the shape of things, but a few more months to really get the strategy nailed down, as everybody would understand through council and so forth, it really wasn't until the end of 2019. Uh, and we've headed off into 2020 feeling confident about how we were going to start implementing that strategy and of course everything changed within a few months. But on reflection, I'm actually really pleased that we did have the strategy and we had time to think through the strategy when we weren't completely overwhelmed by COVID and uh, all of its implications. We revisited it, of course, uh, we had to revisit it uh, and both at council level and executive group level, we came back and we looked at it. But the strategy is a long-term document and it's based on six core pillars. Uh, none of those had changed. And a number of key aspirations, and they hadn't changed either. Uh, in fact, in some ways, they had become more important. What we did have to do was uh, trim our aspirations, perhaps here, extend a timeline there, but some timelines accelerated. So there were things that we wanted to do about online and digital learning. Well, that, that timeline really... Uh, has become feasible far more early. Um, and there were some things that we were able to make really good strides on despite all of the difficulties, uh, for example, around the employment of women at senior levels, uh, the employment and uh, admission into study of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students at all levels. So we had to change our timelines a bit. We had to trim back some of our aspirations, particularly around capital. Uh, and we had to realise that we were going to be patient with ourselves and with our staff. But the core commitments remained, and it was very helpful for us when we were thinking about, sadly, like many universities, trim back on costs or prioritise certain actions with staff when people were tired. To have that strategy and to know what True North was, was in fact incredibly useful. So at one level, yes, you thought, oh gosh, how silly to finish a strategy at 2019 and then 
implemented in such entirely different circumstances. But I think it was, in fact, a benefit. Uh, and both personally and for the university, I'm, I'm happy that we still had that because it's allowed us to continue to make progress on the things that are important to us despite all the challenges. So you refer to it as True North there, um, but I, I know that that's not the title of the strategy. What, what, what's, the, <laughs> what's the Griffith strategy called? And may, maybe in, in positioning it in the sector's broader context, what in essence is different about it? And maybe drilling into detail, what, what three specific things would you point to that make it distinct to other people's strategies? So the strategy is called Creating a Future for All, and we were very deliberate about that title. I know sometimes strategies are just strategic plan 2020 to 2025 or whatever it might be, and that's fine. But we really wanted to position this very deliberately, and, and each word in that title was chosen with care. So in terms of a couple of the specifics, uh, in research, we were keen to have big and ambitious research goals, and we had some fantastic researchers doing great work at Griffith. There's you know, no, nothing broken. But we were looking at ways of encouraging Griffith to find its uh, interdisciplinary heritage again. And Griffith was built as an interdisciplinary university. And there was a lot of commitment for staff to that, which is not necessarily the case in, in some of the more traditional universities. But there wasn't a structure around that. So we created what we call the Griffith Beacons, which are major whole of university interdisciplinary projects based around specific social problems, opportunities or needs and then smaller spotlights. So they brought together just smaller groups for a shorter period of time. We've got beacons now in areas like climate change action, um, reimagining disabilities, preventing violence or disrupting violence, and spotlights bringing together some really interesting groups, uh, indigenous groups, archeologists, and digital um, specialists, for example, looking at digitizing rock art collections or uh, other colleagues working on space and satellite launching. So, you know, that was a really important one for us. The second was we wanted to put values at the heart of all that we did, and that uh, is, I think, one of the things that makes us distinctive. When I talk to colleagues, when I talk to students, when I talk to alumni, when I talk to partners, the same message came through. Griffith is a values-driven university. And so we wanted to have a series of commitments around the composition of our student body, about our commitment to sustainable development, about our commitment to equality, uh, and to social justice, and, and we did that there too. Uh, and then I suppose on the infrastructure front, we wanted to have an ambitious both capital and digital infrastructure plan, which we've done. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we had decided we would do is close down our Mount Gravatt campus over the next five years and move to having a vertical campus in the city to enable students from relevant disciplines to more easily and frequently connect with employers. Uh, and also just to give Griffith and all that it does a real visibility in Brisbane. Okay, it's three years in now, and whilst they've been very different three years than we could have all have anticipated in 2019, I, I wonder what you're most pleased about of what has been achieved so far in implementing the strategy. What three things would you point to there? Well, I think we have to say one of the things is the extraordinary way that the staff have come together, and that was part of the aim. One of our six pillars was... Uh, unleashing the potential of our people. Uh, and we really have seen staff achieve extraordinary things. It's not necessarily the set of things that we set out to try and achieve, but we were looking to build and lift our leadership capability. And unfortunately, we all got a really strong real-time lesson in leadership uh, in times of crisis. But we tried to do a lot of wrapping around with that. So, for example, providing coaching and assistance and support to all of our heads of school and to our director level folk 
uh, to make sure they were ready to face the challenges of the time uh, and gave them extra leadership training and provision. Uh, I am pleased at the way in which we're starting to see really quite um, ambitious and confident uh, plans come out of Griffith. We've seen um, a, a large philanthropic set of donations, for example, from the Paul Ramsey Foundation around uh, some terrific work that's being done at Logan. So we've, we've done that jointly with Victoria University at Brimbank um, about uh, transitions for young people uh, from disadvantaged backgrounds and also a really great program by our criminologists around parents in prison. Uh, we've got one of the shortlisted CRCs, which has been a while for Griffith and so forth, but we're starting to see people have the energy and confidence uh, and we are making progress with our both physical and digital infrastructure. So for the first time, we've got a digital master plan to match our capital master plan. Uh, and I think in the world that we're going into, uh, the, the sort of sometimes ad hoc way that we've gone about digital investments uh, without seeing them being equal in significance to physical capital uh, hasn't served as well and it certainly won't serve as well into the future. Uh, we've already got a fabulous new building designed for uh, the Nathan campus where the folk from Mount Gravatt will come across, uh, which is really exciting, engaging, sustainable. And um, uh, we're, we're undertaking a series of refurbishments that are really bringing the sciences to life at, at Nathan. So plenty has been happening in the last few years, in addition to all the things that have just had to happen in order to survive the last couple of years. That's great. And um, I said in the introduction of, in your introduction at the start of this interview, Carolyn, that you spent time working at Melbourne and studying at, at Oxford. Um, I assume the, the Griffith strategy is quite different to those that operate in those two universities. And I also assume that the rationale and implications of that are that the culture of the, the those three places are quite different. Without going into depth on the culture of, of Melbourne and Oxford, which are perhaps more commonly known and understood, what, what would you describe the culture at Griffith as being like in any way that it's distinctive? And in what way has that influenced and is being impacted by the creating a better future for all strategy? Look, I've been incredibly lucky to have been associated with wonderful universities and they're all wonderful in their, their different way. What really struck me coming to Griffith was how strong and real the sense of values and particularly values around inclusion were at Griffith. Uh, it has a long and deep commitment to creating pathways for bright people, but who might not have always trod the traditional uh, path into higher education. We take lots of incredibly talented 17 and 18 year olds with high ATARs straight into our programs. Absolutely, that's fantastic. But we also have commitments, for example, campus in Logan, which is an area where a lot of people who come to higher education do so as mature age students. You know, we've got a lot of uh, mums with kids who are studying to be teachers or midwives, really life-changing for them, often the first in family. We've got a big Pacifica community, we've got quite a number of refugee students, we've got uh, one of the, the highest numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students in the country. And that means a lot at Griffith. It's not, uh, it's not something that's accidental. It's not something that you know, we tolerate. Staff and students are really committed to it. And when I talk to students, for example, at scholarship days, the number who say, you know, I'm a person like this, uh, at whatever that might be because of their, um, their sexuality, their race, the, 
socioeconomic background they came from, and sometimes they've tried other universities and other opportunities, but they say at Griffith, I'm really welcome. And that's why I say the strategy's name is really a much more of a bottom-up. It wasn't my imposition on the institution. It was the institution telling me we care about this, we really care about creating a future for all. It's a very strong articulation of, of the values and the culture of a place. And um, I wonder if I can drill into that a bit more with you by, by asking you to reflect on what I know to be some data that you've uncovered about some of the, the way that that culture has helped you in the, in the recent past. You, you recently completed, I think, a whole of institution staff engagement survey at a, at a time when I can only imagine morale must have been under more challenge than ever before at Griffith or just about any of our universities. So I wonder if you can just um, give us a snapshot of the, the headline out outcomes of that survey compared to what we might see in the, the sector more broadly at this point in time and how pleased or surprised you were about them if you, if you were pleased and surprised about them and what you put that down to. So like many uh, universities, but indeed institutions more widely, we are trying to make sure that we're listening to our staff. Uh, it doesn't always make for comfortable listening. So there are things we're very pleased with, but there are certain areas where there's a lot of work. We did a series of uh, pulse surveys during 2020. We definitely saw that staff um, morale was impacted and impacted quite severely across 2020, particularly as we had to do restructuring. Uh, and then towards the middle of 2021, we did do a whole of staff survey through voice, which a lot of colleagues will know is used by many Australian universities, New Zealand universities, but indeed about 400 other industry bodies as well. So you get some good benchmarking. Uh, we were pleased, uh, given the point of time, that staff had remained actually pretty strongly engaged, uh, pretty strongly committed to the institution, still satisfied with the leadership, which was, uh, was a relief. Um, and perhaps the, the one that I most note was that uh, compared to uh, the sector benchmarks, um, uh, staff were 8% were higher than the sector benchmarks in believing that we lived our values. And if we can do that in the middle of a crisis and if staff can still believe that um, even after we've had to make the toughest decisions that an institution has to make about restructuring and staff losses only six months earlier, I think it does show that those values run deep. So uh, I wouldn't want to say, yes, we, we were happy. It could have been much worse uh, by, by uh, both sector standards and industry standards. It was actually a good set of numbers, but not complacent because it also showed many areas in which improvement is possible. Uh, and we're working through, at the moment, a really clear detailed plan to try and address the issues that staff raised with us that need improvement. I wonder if you can, um, if you'd be in a position to share some of those um, next steps in, in terms of, I imagine there must be some agenda for culture development and enhanced leadership and communication practices that was generated from the survey that must be, I presume, important to you for keeping that Griffith strategy on, on track? Yeah, so, so of course, um, listening to what your staff have to say and trying to make their working life better should underpin any good strategy of, of any institution. Um, because if your staff are disaffected or feel the institution isn't listening or to them, particularly in these times, they can vote with their feet and go elsewhere. So uh, there were a couple of areas that showed up as staff wanting more done, not being satisfied with where things were. Uh, they didn't like our recruitment practices, so we're putting a fair bit more resources into that. It had just been too slow, too bureaucratic and complex. 
they thought our processes generally were slow and bureaucratic and complex and uh, we've been doing a lot of work on that there's not easy at a university but we are working there they wanted more career development and they wanted more learning and development um, personally I thought that was great it meant that they were actually invested and they wanted to do better and do their jobs better and have opportunities that that's a really good set of negative feedback in some ways uh, and then so they're the four areas that we will focus on that came from staff and then the other area while we actually did pretty well and in some cases very well compared to industry standards was on health and safety uh, and issues around respect bullying harassment and so forth uh, but we're not going to be happy with that until we're doing stratospherically well uh, and we were just doing very well and so we decided even though that didn't show up as a problem area we were still going to put a focus on on that area and our first case our first guest for 2022 on headaches was um, professor jan thomas of massey who also heads up universities new zealand and um in our podcast with her last week she described universities in her country as currently being beacons of hope um, you referred to beacons as being a feature of the Griffith strategy and mentioned some of them to us. I wonder, I wonder if you could describe how you feel universities like Griffith, and perhaps with your IRU hat on, others in that genre, are in a position to offer hope to their staff, to their students and communities at the moment. And what the concept of, of beacons means to you, not just in terms of bringing people together within the university, but as a means in which universities can have impact on communities? It's a wonderful question, Martin, because I think it's a time when people in our communities, generally in Australia, not, not the sector, people are feeling tired and a bit dispirited. Um, we've seen rises in anxiety, mental health issues. So as university leaders, I think we have a real role in actively trying to create a sense of optimism and forward momentum that that the future will be better than the moment that we are stuck in. Uh, and again, that we have some sense of agency around that. And to do the same for the communities that we're part of. And the IIU universities are, are a terrific example of that. Those universities uh, disproportionately take shares of underserved populations for higher education. And there are, there are many populations and they're they're terrific, you know, young people whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents all had higher education, all go to the same university. Nothing wrong with that. That's really great. But the transformative effect of being the first person in your family, sometimes the first person in your community, the first person from you know, the region you come from, to get into university, to perhaps go on to have a profession, that makes an enormous impact. And, you know, the, the moment that I, I love the most uh, every year of the graduations and the graduations at Griffith are just heartwarming. Um, we, we've tried very hard not to limit the number of family members who can come because a lot of our students come from big families and extended families who are very close and for those people to see their children graduate or uh, sometimes to see their mum graduate or uh, you know whatever it might be uh, you can just see the joy you can hear the joy um, and I, I, that gives me hope, but I think it also gives those communities hope, particularly you know, some of the communities are, are newer to Australia um, or newer to higher education, that they are going to be you know, creating a positive future for themselves uh, and to be part of that as a university is wonderful. And I know my colleagues at the IRU, you know, whether they're serving you know, the whole of the Northern Territory in the case of Charles Darwin University, huge swathes of um, 
northern Queensland for JCU, uh, outer suburbs in, in Sydney and in Melbourne um, and Adelaide, you know, that, that they, they all feel the same. When you look at our data, we're disproportionately taking students from communities that haven't had a strong connection to higher education and we're all incredibly proud to do that. Another word that came up in my conversation with Jan in the first episode of this year, Carolyn, was, um, and and it's strongly features, I think, in how Griffith presents itself to the work to the world, and is right at the heart there of the IRU's title, is building upon hope, confidence, and optimism at the at the moment to embark on a journey of innovation. I wonder if you can tell me what's at the heart of your vision for innovation at Griffiths and the extent to which that's shared by IRU partners or not? Yeah, it's funny you should say that. We were, we were having a discussion with the IRU vice chancellors and saying, how can we put innovation back at the heart, given it, it's in the title, it's, you know, how do we do what it says on the tin? Uh, and we think there are a number of dimensions to that. One of the interesting things about the IRU is that it has a really strong connection with the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, and I think one of the ways that we are and we can become innovative is to engage with uh, all the best and the most interesting things that are happening in the broader world and not always going to the usual suspects, United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, New Zealand. Um, but what is happening in South Korea? What's happening in Fiji? Um, what's happening in Japan? And what's happening in China? And strangely, that may now be you know the most innovative thing of all to say. Um, but you know, by connecting across the region, and we want to do that in a little bit more of a structured way as a group, uh, we think that there are, there's an enormous opportunity to learn from one another's innovations. Here at uh, Griffith, we're trying to engage with innovative uh, industry-engaged research that is focused on real-world problems. So uh, one of the big projects at the moment, for example, is um, Professor Cheng Rong Cheng's work on recycling plastics, uh, starting with rather than starting with a particular discipline or, um, you know, a single researcher thinking about, well, what's the real problem in the world that we could help tackle massive production of plastics, really problematic production of plastics, uh, and how could, we, how could we engage in that? How could we bring together industry groups, government groups, different researchers from different disciplines to create that? And we're trying to be innovative in, in all sorts of other ways too. Of course, with our teaching, we've all had a bit of an injection of innovation necessary in um, learning how to teach well online, but it's also made us more thoughtful about what we do face-to-face. -face. How do we really create value to bring people on campus? Uh, and we are trying to be more innovative in our processes and practices, not just we have this committee because we've always had this committee because we've always had this committee, but is it doing something? Is it adding value or is it wasting people's time? We've always had seven people sign off on this next step do we need to? Uh, we're training lots of our professional staff are getting little crash courses in developing their own bots uh, to um, create new processes and automations in their own areas. So rather than just having a specialist team do that, we're actually skilling up uh, our professional staff to be able to, to start being innovative and creative in their own workplaces. So lots of innovation, as, as always happens with crisis, it's, uh, it is perhaps the upside of it. And just as we bring this interview to a close now then, Carolyn, I, I mean, reflecting on what you've shared with us here today, I, I get a very strong feeling of you being a leader who has a lot of hope, confidence and optimism for the future. 
and that you're really committed to sharing that every day with your staff who if if that staff engagement survey is right and i'm sure it is who in turn are staying very engaged with you their university and their strategy in the most challenging of times I've asked this question of every vice chancellor I've spoken to in the last year and a half in front of a microphone like this. Are you enjoying the challenge of being a vice chancellor at Griffith right now? I am. Uh, It's an honour to have a role like this. It's a pleasure to work with such wonderful colleagues, to feel that you're making a difference in the lives of students who have sometimes been dealt a fairly rough hand by life up until that point in time. Uh, I'd be kidding if I didn't say there were difficulties there were some dark days and dark weeks there will probably be some to come um you really would love to be able to protect your staff more uh to you know i just know how hard it has been for people uh how much work and struggle and difficulty there's been but i do actually think that one of my roles and one of the roles of vice chancellors generally is to help people understand that there is a tomorrow and that tomorrow can be brighter and we can do things now that make that more likely to happen. Uh, And that's not to be disrespectful of the really serious struggles some of them have. Uh, But actually, I think it is both. It's not just good for the institution, it's good for individuals as well to believe that, well, there can be a better future for all and that we can all have a role in creating it. Well, for joining us today on Headaches, Carolyn, and being so... um articulate and open about your strategy, but also so clear on on the values and the culture and the purpose that lie behind why you're doing what you're doing and why Griffith is on the path that it's on. I really offer you our our thanks from everybody for joining us on HeadX today. It's been a great pleasure, Martin. Thanks very much for having me. So Martin, obviously Griffith University isn't a new uh, entity for you, nor me for that matter. Um, How did you find that interview? Well, I just found it um, reminding and reassuring about a place that, that, that I love and have known very well. And I, every, everything that I heard from Carolyn there rings absolutely true with the lived experience that I had of how values of a place um, are really under, under, underpinning of leadership practice and the culture that emerges in a group of people. And that, that commitment to, to both social inclusion but also interdisciplinarity is what I know Griffith to, to stand for, for its people to believe in and for its leaders to be pursuing. I think there was a, a lot of really good stuff in there. And, and it's, it's really important, I think, the, co- the contrast between Carolyn's journey of having studied at, at, and worked at Melbourne, at, studied at Oxford and now leading Griffiths, Different places have different values, need different cultures when they're pursuing different strategies. And I think we heard that very clearly from the Griffith Griffith VC today. I think we did too. I know you were the Deputy Vice-Chancellor there for six years, might be. So I know you were involved uh, deeply in the organisation. And I I spent, I think, three or four years consulting to Griffith. And I was very taken by what, um, what I saw as you know, authentic brand positioning, you know, the social justice agenda. I know in that interview, Carolyn spoke largely to the amplification of that um, and the acceptance that that's really part of their role in terms of the uh, the higher education landscape is to embrace that, that they have very strong ties to uh, a range of disadvantaged students, First Nations people, um, working very actively on real-world problems to reduce violence generally, um, specific violence uh, against women. So it's hard not to love it. It's really hard not to be passionate about that particular brand image. 
Well, I, I think so. And, and I mean, when you, when you have that sort of commitment and culture and it's reflected in your brand image, it, it has impacts in all sorts of ways in terms of the students that you attract and the staff that you attract and who remain with you. And my experience of, of, of encountering Griffith at all sorts of different levels through its students and, and its staff and its leaders, uh, that the people that work there really believe in these things. They're really committed to it. Um, and I mean, Carolyn mentioned it there that they've done a staff engagement survey right in the middle of one of the most challenging periods of morale for any Australian university. They're not alone in doing staff engage- engagement surveys right now. And to get such high levels of engagement for the sector at times when the sector is under such pressure and to be relentlessly ambition ambitious on their cultural enhancement coming out of that, not resting on laurels, mm. I think is um, a really clear sign of, of how important culture is to how leaders see the place. So just reflecting on their strategy, you know, they, they, uh, Carolyn was talking about um, creating a future for all, you know, creating a, a brand name for the actual strategy, which actually has culture in the centre of it, you know, centre of that. Um, I think that's really powerful. And the, the idea that you've got um, a strategic idea or a strategic imperative that's very um, clearly defined against beacons and spotlights makes it very easy for people to get on board. And I think what Griffith's got going for it, um, and look, I'm sure a lot of universities are the same, is they're not corporate entities that have a um, imposter syndrome or are pretending to be something. Um, and that comes from the CEO's office that says, here's a mandate of who we are and the way we operate. Now, there's very much a need for that generally in terms of cultural boundaries and how we um, interact and, and develop levels of trust with one another. But there seems to be an organic current uh, in Griffith, and I think Carolyn's come in and tapped into that very well, that the major motivational elements for staff there, I imagine across research and education, do speak to social justice and changing higher education for good, which is, of course, what we're all about. Well, I mean, she she hinted at it when she described how in 2019, coming into the place, she developed the strategy. And and I was there at the time that she joined Griffith and took over its leadership and, and when that strategy was developed. It was very much an approach of not arriving as the new VC saying, hello, I'm here to lead the place. This is what I believe in. This is what my experience has been. I'm here to convince you we're going there. It was so much more a question of coming in and saying, I'm excited about coming to this place because what I understand its values to be, what I understand its culture and potential to be. Can you tell me what it is and can you articulate it while we together paint a picture of where we can take those values and that culture as the future strategy of this university and getting those measures of different sorts of places and comparing them with each other and understanding what you're dealing with I think there's a paucity of data on this I mean for goodness sake we have so much data on universities we rank them against shared values of papers and publications and how much money we're making out of grants and how many Nobel Prizes we've got and how satisfied students are. But Mm. understanding how they compare with each other and maybe entities outside the sector in terms of their underpinning culture and values and potential for future strategy is a bit of a gap. Yeah, it's certainly where we're focusing now, not just from uh, the, the sector, but industry-wide, outside. There's an enormous question mark for customers, um, shareholders, anyone interested in the organisation to want to know what is the actual level of uh, innovation in the business and how are they culturally set up 
to continue driving that because we, we know that the learning organisations are the highest performing organisations. We know that the cost of uh, voluntary turnover and attrition is uh, millions and millions of dollars that, that really could be saved at any given time. So recognize, finding a way to recognise rank um, and rank organisations purely by help to help them uh, tell their story, you know, to represent themselves well to the community that, yes, we have a culture that's very sustainable, it's buoyant, it speaks to our strategy. Um, and in terms of the way that we do that, we collaborate freely. And look, Caroline Evans spoke about that too, that um, she was bringing, uh, you know, the university is bringing disparate groups together to collaborate effectively and innovate for real world solutions. Now, that's what everyone wants. The last thing we want is a sheltered workshop working in isolation to try and come up with with ideas. By the time they've actually done that, the world's moved. So it's important for organisations to work uh, in the concept of wisdom of crowds and make sure that they are holding up the highest possible cultural standards as they're working towards those strategic goals. We used that expression wisdom of crowds in last week's episode as well, Carl, didn't we? And we contrasted it with groupthink, didn't we? And I think there's a really important issue here in that so much of the thinking in universities is about what else is happening in the sector and how do I fit within the sector and how can I learn from others that are leaders in the sector and and the plethora of university rankings just play to that in terms of measuring what used to be important and how places compare in what used to be important there's a danger of that being groupthink and the wisdom of crowds that the present circumstances need I think call upon us to compare and contrast and learn our current culture and our approaches to innovation not from what the university down the road is doing or one in another country that's like ours, but what are tech companies doing? What are new businesses doing? What are startups doing? What can we learn about how to create an even better culture in our universities that empower all these brilliant people we have working at, at them mm. to get us out of the current predicament in the post-COVID environment we're moving into to be a really innovative university? And I, I think there's a real chance to shine a light on that in the work that we're trying to do in changing higher education for good and some leading universities that we might shine a light on ourselves of exemplary work that they're doing in that direction. Couldn't agree more. Just to finish today, there's a reminder that our HeadX Live event is running next week. For any sponsoring organisation, of course, your people can register at headx.com.au. That's all we have time for this week on HeadX. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.